Welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. I'm your host, Justin Bullock, and as we're getting started today, I'm just going to double check to make sure my feed is all set up. Still getting a little used to the Facebook Live. There we are. Okay. All right. Well, today is Monday, January 25th, 2021. And this is our third weekly show and the second time that I brought it to you live on Facebook, bright and early out here on the West Coast at 6 a.m. all the way to 9 a.m. for my East Coast friends. So thanks of you, uh, thanks to those of you who are joining us live. Quite a few of you joined us live last week as kind of a surprise launch into the Facebook Live. Uh, thanks, to the, thanks to those who you are watching this video after we've recorded it live. And also thanks to you who are listening on our SoundCloud and uh, podcast on Public Problems Podcast. So thanks to all of you. Um, as we're getting ready to do to get started this week, I have a few updates for you. Um, the first big news, I suppose, is uh, 10 of you decided to support the show by being patrons through Patreon. Thank you so much for that. Um, it's very exciting to have people choosing to commit financially to the show. Um, and in kind of honor of that, I use the launch of that as an opportunity to get a new microphone. So you may, you're maybe hearing me a little bit more clearly for this episode than you have in the past. So one kind of immediate benefit of having some funds go towards it. Those immediate funds are also, um, will help with the hosting of the of the podcast. So thank you so much for that. Um, if you're not yet supporting the podcast and you would like to, you can visit uh, Patreon. Uh, you can click to the link in this video, uh, Justin Bullock, and you have three different levels. Um, playing off my own uh, day profession, uh, assistant for $3 a month, associate for $5 a month, and full for $7. Each of these levels of support come with their own benefits. Uh, but there are some general fit benefits no matter what level. Uh, one, you're helping to keep the podcast uh, up and available and ad-free. 10% of all of your donations will go to Giving What You Can's top five charities from 2021. And once you're a patron, once you are uh, supporting financially, you'll also receive a free copy of my book, Low Wainwright, which will be my first uh, novel. You're going to be learning more about um, through listening to this podcast, but you'll receive a free copy of that when it's published on July 1. Okay, so um, as we move forward with the podcast and with the show, um, part of some of the benefits to developing some supporters on Patreon is the opportunity to provide some events directly to those of you who are supporting the uh, podcast. So you'll be getting an email from me from the email you registered on Patreon, uh, but there are going to be two events in February. Now that there's 10 of you, I'd like to start hosting some events. One will be a link to a live recording. We'll do a live recording inside of Zoom where you can join uh, by video or by audio as part of the show. The second event will be an Ask Me Anything event late in February. This will also be done on uh, likely on Zoom, and we'll get together for about an hour, and you can ask me any questions that you have. So I'm looking forward to the doing those events for the first time. 
I'll take a little bit of sip of water. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to update you on is the Low Wainwright book, as uh, this is part of what you're going to receive for supporting the podcast. Part of some of the content and themes from the show and podcast are tied to the book as well. And um, just so you know, uh, I'm 25,000 words in towards what I expect will be about 70,000 um, for the book. Um, I have hired uh, an editor um, and have another former uh, teacher, English teacher, looking at it and editing it as well. I've commissioned both illustrations and some photographs for the book. So it will have those uh, visual accompaniments. And um, there'll be more on this in the following weeks. I'm going to integrate parts of the book with what we're doing on the podcast again and what we're doing on Facebook. Those are all the updates I have for you um, this week. If you have any questions um, questions for me, you can feel free to email me, um, or you can also uh, comment on our on our Facebook page. Comment below the video. Just wanted to briefly revisit uh, our our readings from last week to kind of have a continuous theme here. So if you missed last week, uh, give it a listen or watch. I read to you William Carlos Williams' Dance Roos, uh, which is a short, fun poem. Um, it was shared with me recently that I really enjoyed, so I passed along it to you all. I uh, brought a smile to my face. Hope it does the same for you. I also introduced you to Olaf Stapleton and uh, the book Odd John, which we're going to follow up on this week with a little bit of a longer uh, reading from Odd John, but last week we read chapter one and you were introduced to the to the narrator of the book and to Odd John, John Wainwright, and you uh, got to learn a little bit about him and how he um, is a little different than a typical human um, with, a, with a slight mutation and considers himself a what he calls a homo superior. And we're going to really explore um, what Olaf Stapleton did with this character and some of his thoughts on human society that I want to use as part of the podcast today to get to get you thinking about some of the challenges we face today. This book was written in 1935, which is quite some time ago now, but the themes I think uh, as you follow along today um, you'll find strikingly similar. We also last week, um, in honor of MLK Day, Red letter from uh, Birmingham, and I left with you some reflections in particular from that letter that I think are as relevant today as 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 they were then. And uh, I'm going to continue doing these live recordings. So the next one will be uh, February one, Monday morning, bright and early again out here on the West Coast. I'll be recording from a different location. Um, so that'll be have a, a little bit of exciting different background for you then. And um, yeah, that is all the updates I have for you this week. Um, so uh, I'm going to grab another sip of this water. So what I'd like to share with you today from a content um, standpoint is chapter 10, or an abridged version of chapter 10 from Ah John, from Olaf Stapleton's Ah John. 
last week, as I mentioned, uh, in case you missed it, we read, uh, I read to you chapter one. Chapter 10 is a bit longer, so I have it broken down into five shorter parts that I'll take brief breaks from um, and give you a moment to, to pause or to think on what you've just heard. And um, it will take, I think, about 30 minutes. So this will be a little bit longer show and longer reading than I've done in the past. Um, so I'll be really interested in your thoughts on, uh, as a listener, whether it was enjoyable or kind of went on a little bit. Um, but what I'd like to do is is read it in five parts, and I'll start and I'll start reading it sort of as um, as in character a little bit. And uh, you can tell I'm a little nervous about it. Voice went high pitched there. Um, so I'm going to read it in five different parts. I'll take uh, stops along the way. Um, enjoy some coffee and some water and not rush it. Um, feel free, if you're listening to this in video um, or in audio, to, to pause. So let me get this pulled up, and I'm going to, I'll read it to you, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. This is going to be chapter 10 um, uh, from Odd John. One of the things to keep in mind um, is... Part of this is sharing the writer's thoughts about society and about religion. Um, the narrator, uh, which can be me in this case, is um, sharing what, uh, what the character John was supposed to think about these topics. I give them here to you this morning just for you to reflect on, not to completely endorse any particular view, but to use it to pose questions to yourself and about the way you conceptualize your own values and your own ethics uh, and how you think the world should look to be a better better version of the world. John, as you're going to see, has some thoughts and some criticisms. Um, so take them in, let me know what you think about them, and um, there will be some ties from thoughts from this chapter into readings we have in the future. Okay, enough stalling. With all of that in mind, this is chapter 10, The World's Plight. It's going to be a bridged version of chapter 10, and um, so I hope you enjoy. I shall now try to give some idea of John's reactions to our world by setting down, more or less at random, some of his comments on individuals and types institutions and movements which he studied during this period of his life. Let's begin with his thoughts on the psychiatrist. John's verdict on this eminent manipulator of minds seemed to me to show both his contempt for homo sapiens and his sympathetic appreciation of the difficulties of beings that are neither sheer animal nor fully human. After our last visit to the consulting room, Indeed, before the door was closed behind us, John indulged in a long, chuckling laugh that reminded me of the cry of a startled grouse. Poor devil, he cried. What else could he do, anyhow? He's got to seem wise at all costs, even when he's absolutely blank. He's in the same fix as a successful medium. He's not just a quack. 
There's a lot of real sound stuff in his trade. No doubt when he's dealing with straightforward cases of a fairly low mental order, with troubles that are at bottom primitive, he fixes them up all right. But even then, he doesn't really know what he's doing or how he's getting his cures. Of course, he's got his theories, and they're damned useful too. He gives the wretched patient doses of twaddle as a doctor might give bread pills, and the poor fool laps it all up and feels hopeful and manages to cure himself. But when another sort of case comes along, who is living habitually on a mental story about six floors above our friend's own snug little flat, so to speak, there must be a glorious fiasco. How can a mind of his caliber possibly understand a mind that's at all aware of the really human things? I don't mean the highbrow things. I mean subtle human contacts and world contacts. He has a sort of highbrow his own, with his modern pictures and his books on the unconscious. But he's not human in the full sense, even according to the standards of Homo sapiens. He's not really grown up. And so, though he doesn't know it, the poor man is all at sea when he comes up against a real grown-up, really grown-up people. For instance, in spite of his modern pictures, he hasn't a notion what art is after, though he thinks he has, and he knows less of philosophy, real philosophy, than an ostrich, than an ostrich knows about the upper air. And you can't blame him. His wings just wouldn't carry his big, fleshy, pedestrian mind. That's no reason why he should make matters worse by burying his hand in the sand and kicking himself he see, and kidding himself he sees the foundation of human nature. When a really winged case comes along with all sorts of troubles due to not giving his wings exercise, our friend hasn't the slightest perception what's the matter. He says in effect, wings? What's wings? Just flat doodle. <laughs> Look at mine. Get him attributed as soon as possible and bury your head in sand to make sure. In fact, he puts the patients into a sort of coma of the spirit. If it lasts, he's permanently cured, poor man, and completely worthless. Often it does last because your psychiatrist is an extremely good suggestionist. He could turn a saint into a satire by mere sleight of mind. God. Think of a civilization that hands over the cure of souls to toughs like that. Of course, you can't blame him. He's a decent sort on his own plane and doing his bit. But it's no use expecting a vet to mend a fallen angel. John was critical of psychiatry. He was no less so of the churches. It was not only with the purpose of studying Homo sapiens that he had begun to take an interest in religious practices and doctrines, his motive was partly, so he told me, that hope that some light might be thrown upon certain new and perplexing experiences of his own mind, which might perhaps be of the kind that the normal species called religious. He actually attended a few services at churches and chapels. He also returned from, he always returned from these expeditions in a state of excitement, which found outlet sometimes in in jests about the proceedings, sometimes in almost hysterical exasperation and perplexity. Coming out from an emotional chapel service of roughly the Bethel type, <clears throat> he remarked, 99% slush? 
and 1% something else, but, but what? The tensity about his voice made me turn to look at him. To my amazement, I saw tears in his eyes. Now, John's lacrimatory reflexes were normally under absolute voluntary control. Since his infancy, I had never known him to weep, except by deliberate policy. Yet, these were apparently spontaneous tears, and he, and he seemed unconscious of them. Suddenly, he laughed and said, This is soul-saving. If one were God, wouldn't one laugh at it or squirm? What does it matter whether we're saved or not? Sheer blasphemy to want to be, I should say. But what is it that does matter? And and comes through all the slush like light through a filthy window. On Armistice Day, he persuaded me to go with him to a service in a Roman Catholic cathedral. The great building was crowded. Artificiality and insincerity were blotted out by the solemnity of the occasion. The ritual was somehow disturbing, even to an agnostic like me. One felt a rather terrifying sense of the power which worship in the grand tradition could have upon masked and susceptible believer, believers. John had entered the cathedral in his normal mood of aloof interest in the passions of homo sapiens. But as the service proceeded, he became less aloof and, and more absorbed. He ceased to look about him with inscrutable hawk-like stare. His attention, I felt, was no longer concentrated on individuals of the congregation or on the choir or on the priest, but, but on the totality of the situation. An expression strangely foreign to all that, that I knew of him now began to flicker on his face. Um, an expression with which I was to become very familiar in, in later years, but cannot to this day satisfactory, satisfactorily interpret. It suggested surprise and perplexity, a, a kind of incredulous rapture and a, a, a slightly bitter amusement. I naturally assumed that John was relishing the folly and self-importance of our kind, as he was prone to do, but when we were leaving the cathedral, he startled me. He startled me by saying, how splendid it might be if only they could keep from wanting their God to be human. He must have seen that I was taken aback, for he laughed and said, Oh, of course, I see it's nearly all tripe. That priest, the way he bows to the altar is enough to show what sort he is. The whole thing is askew, intellectually and emotionally. But, well, don't you get the echo of something not wrong? Of some experience that happened years ago and was right and glorious, I suppose. I suppose it happened to Jesus and his friends, and, and something remote that, something remotely like it was happening to about a fiftieth of that congregation. Couldn't you feel it happening? But of course, as soon as they got it all in their head, they, they spoiled it by trying to fit it into all those damn silly theories their church gives them. It suggested to John that this excitement, which he and others experienced, was just 
the sense of a great crowd and the solemn occasion and that we shouldn't project that excitement and persuade ourselves that we were in touch with something superhuman. John looked quickly at me, then burst into a hearty laughter. My dear man, he said. And this, I believe, was almost the first time he used that devastating expression. Even if you can't tell the difference between being excited by a crowd and the other thing, I can, and a good many of your kind can too, till they let their psychologists muddle them. I tried to persuade him to be more explicit, but he only said, I'm just a kid, and it's all new to me. Even Jesus couldn't really say what, it, what he saw. As a matter of fact, he didn't try to say much about it. He mostly talked about the way it could change people. But he did, when he did talk about it itself, he nearly always said the wrong thing, or else they reported him all wrong. But how do I know? I'm only a kid. All right, that was part one. John goes on for a little bit more, and we pick him back up as he's responding to the to the narrator. And here they're talking about tensions between the haves and have-nots. You you talk, he said, as if hate were rational as if men only hated when they had reason to hate. If you want to understand the modern Europe and the world, you have to keep in mind three things that are really quite distinct, although they are all tangled up together. First, there's this almost universal need to hate something, rationally or irrationally, to find something to unload your own sins on, and then to smash it. In perfectly healthy minds, even of your own species, this need to hate only plays a small part. But nearly all minds are damnable unhealthy, and so they must have something to hate. Mostly they just hate their neighbors, or their wives, or husbands, or, or parents, or, or their children. But they get a much more exalted sort of excitement by, by hating foreigners. A nation, after all, is just a society for hating foreigners, a sort of super hate club. The second thing to bear in mind is the obvious one of economic disorder. The people with economic power try to run the world for their own profit. Not long ago they succeeded, more or less, but now the job has gotten beyond them. And, as we all know, there's this hell of a mess. This, give, this gives hate a new outlet. The have-nots, with very good reason, exercise their hate upon their haves, who have made the mess and, and can't clean it up. The haves fear and therefore zestfully hate the have-nots. But what people can't realize is that if there were no deep-rooted need to hate in almost every mind, the social problem would be at least intelligently faced and, and perhaps solved. Then there's a third factor, namely this 
growing sense that there's something all wrong with modern, solely scientific culture. I don't mean that people are intellectually doubtful about science. It's, it's much deeper than that. They are simply finding that modern culture isn't enough to live by. It just doesn't work in practice. It has a, got a screw loose somewhere, or some vital bit of it's dead. Now this horror against modern culture, against science and mechanization and standardization, is only just beginning to be a serious factor. It's newer than Bolshevism. The Bolshevs and all the socially left-wing people are still content with modern culture. Or rather, they put all its faults down to capitalism. Dear innocent theorists. But the essence of it they still accept. They're rationalistic, scientific, mechanistic, brass-tactistic. But another crowd, scattered all over the place, are having the hell of a deep revulsion against all this. They don't know what's the matter with it, but they're sure it's not enough. Some of them, feeling that lack, just creep back into church, especially the Roman church. But too much water has passed under that bridge since the churches were alive, so that's no real use. The crowds who can't swallow the Christian dope are terribly in need of something, though they don't know what or even they're in need at all. And this deep need gets mixed up with their hate need. And if they're middle class, it gets mixed up also with their fear of social revolution. And this fear, along with their hate need, may get played on by any crook with an ax to grind, or by any able man with an itching for a bossing. That's what happened in Italy. That sort of thing will spread. I bet my boots that in a few years there'll be a tremendous anti-left movement all over Europe, inspired partly by fear and hate, partly by that vague, fumbling suspicion that there's something all wrong with scientific culture. It's more than an intellectual suspicion. It's a certainty of the bowels. Call it a sort of brute-blind religious hunger. Didn't you feel the beginnings of it in Germany last year when we were there? A deep, still, unconscious revulsion from mechanism, and from rationality, and from democracy, and from sanity? That's it. A confused craving to be mad. A possessed in some way. Just the thing for the well-to-do haters to use for their own ends. That's what's going to get Europe. That's what's going to get America. And its power depends on its being a hodgepodge of self-seeking, sheer hate. And this bewildered hunger of the soul, which is so worthy and, and so easily twisted into something bloody. If Christianity could hold it in and discipline it, it might do wonders. But Christianity is played out. So these folks will probably invent some ghastly religion of their own. Their God will be the God of the hate club, the nation. That's what's coming. The new messiahs, one for each tribe, won't triumph by love and gentleness, but by hate and ruthlessness. Just because that's what you all really want.
at the bottom of your poor, diseased bowels, your crazy minds, in Jesus Christ. That's part two. And some coffee to go with it. In case you're worried that John was only critical of the church, he had also spent some time and some weeks studying the intelligentsia. He made his entry into Bloomsburg by acting the part of a precocious genius and allowing a well-known writer to exhibit him. Evidently, he flung himself into the life of these brilliant and disoriented young men and women with characteristic thoroughness, for when he returned, he was, he was something of a wreck. I need not retell his account of his experiences, but his analysis of the plight of the leaders of our thought is worth reporting. You see, he said, they really are, in a sense, the leaders of thought or leaders of fashion and thought. What they think and feel today, the rest think and feel next year or so. And some of them really are, according to the standards of HOMESAP, first-class minds, or might have been in different circumstances. Of course, most are just riffraff, but they don't count. Well, the situation's really very simple and very desperate. Here is the center to which nearly all the best sensibility and best intellect of the country gets attracted in the expectation of meeting its kind and enriching its experience. But what happens when they all get together? The poor little flies find themselves caught in a web, a subtle mesh of convention. So subtle, in fact, that most of them are unaware of it. They buzz and buzz and imagine they are free flyers, when as a matter of fact, each one is stuck fast on its particular strand of the web. Of course, they have the reputation of being the most unconventional people of all. The center imposes on them a convention of unconventionality, of daring, of daring thought and conduct. But they can only be daring within the limits of their convention. They have a sameness of intellectual and moral taste which makes them fundam fundamentally all alike in spite of their quite blatant superficial differences. That wouldn't matter so much if, if their tastes were really discriminate taste, but it's not. In, in most cases, and in, in, in such any powers of precision and delicacy as they actually have get dulled by this convention. If the convention were a sound one, all might be well, but but it's, but it's not. It consists in trying to be brilliant and original and in craving experience. And uh, some of them are brilliant and original um, according to the standards of your species. And some of them have the gift for experience. But when they do achieve brilliance and experience, this is in spite of the web and consists at best in a certain flutter and agitation, not in, not in true flight, the influence of the all-pervading convention turns brilliance into brightness, uh, originality into perversity, and it, it deadens the mind to all but the cruder sorts of experience. I don't mean merely crudity in, in sexual experience and personal relations, though indeed they're quite 
sound will to break the old customs and avoid sentimentality at all costs has led them in the end to a jading and coarsening extravagance. What I mean is crudity of, well, of, of spirit. Though they are often very intelligent, uh, again for your species, they haven't got any of the finer aspects of experience to use their intelligence on. And that seems to be due partly to a complete lack of spiritual discipline, partly to an obscure half-conscious funk. You see, they're all very sensitive creatures, very susceptible to pleasure and pain, and, and er early in their lives, whenever they bumped into anything like a fundamental experience, they found it terribly upsetting. And so they formed habits of avoiding that sort of thing. And they made up for this persistent avoidance by drenching themselves in all sorts of minor and superficial, though sensational, experiences. And also by talking about big about experience with a capital E, buzzing intellectually. This analysis made me feel a little uncomfortable, for though I was not one of them, I could not disguise from myself the same sort of condemnation might apply to me. John evidently saw my thoughts, for he grinned, and more were indulgent and entirely vulgar. Wink. Then he said, strikes home, old thing, doesn't it? Never mind. You're not in the web. You're an outsider. Fate has kept you safely fluttering in a backward north. That was part three. <sighs> a little more water. All right. Part, part four. After not talking with John for a little bit, he was being not very chatty. I went to visit him, and we got to chatting, and he was being evasive, and so I said, Oh, for God's sake, do be explicit. What's up with you these days? Can't you tell a fellow? He transferred his gaze from the ceiling to my face. He stared. I started to fill my pipe. Yes, I'll tell you, he said, if I can, or as much as I can. Some time ago, I asked myself a question, namely this. Is the plight of the world today a mere incident, an illness that might have been avoided and maybe cured? Or is it something more inherent in the very nature of your species? Well, I've got my answer. Homo sapiens is a spider trying to crawl out of a basin. The higher he crawls, the steeper, the steeper the hill. Sooner or later, down he goes. So, so long as he's on the bottom, he can get along quite nicely. But as soon as he starts climbing, he begins to slip. And the higher he climbs, the farther he falls. It doesn't matter which direction he tries. He can make civilization after civilization. But every time, long before he begins to be really civilized, skid. I protested against John's assurance. It may be so, I said, but how can you possibly know? Homo sap is an inventive animal. 
Might not the spider sometime or other contrive to make his feet sticky? Or, well, suppose he's not a spider at all, but a beetle. Beetles have wings. They often forget how to use them, but aren't there signs that Holmesap in, his, in the present climb is different from all the others? Mechanical power is, sticking, is a stickiness for his feet. And I believe his wing cases are stirring too. John regarded me in silence. Pulling himself together, he said, as if from a great distance, no wings, no wings. Then, in a more normal voice, and as for mechanical power, if he knew how to use it, it might help him up a few steps farther, but he doesn't. You see, for every type of creature, there's a limit of possible development of capacity, a limit inherent in the ground plan of its organization. Homo sapiens reached his limit a million years ago, but he has only recently begun to use his powers dangerously. In achieving science and mechanism, he has brought about a state of affairs which cannot be dealt with properly, save by capacity which is much more developed than his. Of course, he may not slip just yet. He, he may succeed in muddling through this particular crisis of history. But if he does, it, it will only be muddling through to stagnation, not to the soaring that even he in his own heart is des desperately craving. Mechanical power, you see, is indeed vitally necessary to the full development of the human spirit, but to the subhuman spirit, it's lethal. But how can you know that? Aren't you being a bit too confident in your own judgment? I asked. John's lips compressed themselves, assumed a crooked smile. You're right, he said. There's just one possibility that I have not mentioned. If the species as a whole or a large proportion of the world population were to be divinely inspired so that their nature became truly human all in stride, all would soon be well. I took this for irony, but he went on to say, oh no, I'm, I'm quite serious. It's possible if you interpret divinely inspired to mean lifted out of their pettiness by a sudden and spontaneous access of strength to their own rudimentary spiritual nature. It happens again and again in individuals here and there. When Christianity came, it, it happened to large numbers, but they were still a very small proportion of the whole, and the thing petered out. Short of that kind of thing, or, or rather something much more widespread and much more powerful than the Christian miracle, there's no hope. The early Christians you see, and, and the early Buddhists, and so on, remained at bottom what I should call subhuman, in spite of their miracle. In, in intelligence, they remained what they were before the miracle. And in will, though they were profoundly changed by the new thing in them, the, the change was insecure. Or rather, the new thing seldom managed to integrate their whole being into a new and harmonious order. 
its rule was precarious. The new psychological compound, so to speak, was, was a terribly unstable compound. Or putting it in another way, they, they managed to become saints, but, but, but seldom angels. The subhuman and the human were always in violent conflict in them, and so they mostly got obsessed with the idea of sin and saving their souls, and instead of being able to pass on to live this new life with fluency and joy and with creative effect in the world. At this point, we fell silent. I relit my pipe and John remarked, match number nine, you funny old thing. That was part four. All right, part five, and the final part of the abridged reading of chapter 10 of John. Another time when I was talking to John, he said, I'll tell you something else. I've had the hell of a fright lately, and uh, I'm not easily frightened. This was only the second time ever. I went to the cup tie final last week to see the crowd. You remember. It was, a, it was a close fight, and a damned good game from beginning to end. And three minutes before time, there was trouble over a foul. The ball went into goal before the referee's whistle had got going for the foul, and that goal would have won the match. Well, the, the crowd got all head up about it, as you probably heard. That's what frightened me. I don't mean I was scared of being hurt in a row. No, I should have quite enjoyed a bit of a row. If I'd known which side to be on and there been something to fight about, but there wasn't. It clearly was a foul. Their precious sporting instinct ought to have kept them straight, but it didn't. They just lost their heads, went brute mad over it. What got me was the sudden sense of being different from everyone else of being a human being alone in this vast herd of cattle. Here was a fair sample of the world's population of the seven billion uh, uh, homo saps, and this fair sample was expressing itself in a thoroughly characteristic way and in and, and, and articulate bellowing and braying. And, and here I was, a, a raw, ignorant, blundering little creature, but human, really human, perhaps the only real human being in the world. And just because I was really human and had in me the possibility of some new and transcendent spiritual achievement, I was more important than all the rest of that 1,600 million put together. That was a terrifying thought in itself. What made matters worse was the bellowing crowd. Not that I was afraid of them, but of the thing they were a, a, a sample of. Not that I was afraid as a private individual, so to speak. The thought was very exhilarating from, from that point of view. If they had turned on me, I'd, I'd have made a damn good fight for it. But what terrified me was the thought of the immense responsibility and the immense odds against my fulfilling it. John fell silent, and I was so stunned by his prodigious self-importance that I that I had nothing to say. 
Presently, he, he began again. Of course I know, Fido, old thing. The whole business must seem fantastic to you. But perhaps by being a bit more precise on one point, I might make the thing clearer. It's already pretty common knowledge that another world war is likely, and that if it does come, it may very well be the end of civilization. But I know something that makes the whole situation look much worse than it's generally thought to be. I don't really know what will happen to the species in the long run, but I do know that unless a miracle happens, there's bound to be a most ghastly mess in the short run for psychological reasons. I've looked pretty carefully into lots of minds, big and little, and it's devastatingly clear to me that in, that in big matters, Homo sapiens is a species with a very slight educable capacity. He has entirely failed to learn his lesson from the last war. He shows no more practical intelligence than a moth that has fluttered through a candle flame once and do so again as soon as it has recovered from that shock. And again, and yet again, till its wings are burnt. Intellectually, many people realize the danger. They're not the sort to act on the awareness. It's as though the moth knew that the flame meant death, yet simply couldn't stop the wings from taking it there. Then what would this crazy religion of nationalism that's beginning and the steady improvement in the technique of destruction? A, a huge disaster is simply inevitable, barring a miracle which, of course, may happen. There, there, there might be some sort of sudden leap forward to a more human mentality, and therefore a worldwide social and religious revolution. But apart from that, I should give the disease 15 to 20 years to come to a head. Then one fine day, a few great powers will, will attack one another and Civilization will have gone in a few weeks. Now, of course, I could take charge. I could probably stave off the smash. But, as I say, it would mean chucking the really vital thing I do, that I could do. Chicken farming is, is not worth such a sacrifice. The upshot is, Fido, I'm through with your bloody awful species. I must strike out on my own and if possible, in such a way as to avoid being smashed in the coming disaster. All right, well, that went on a little bit longer than 30 minutes. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this reading. And um, it was kind of fun to read it to you. And uh, we'll provide another live episode in a week. And in that episode, we will take a little bit of a break from, from John. I'll be sharing some work with you on artificial intelligence and another poem. And then we'll return back to John's story in a couple of weeks. Okay, thanks for following along. It's a lot of fun and hope, to, hope you'll enjoy and you'll join us live next Monday at, uh, at 
at 6 a.m. West Coast and uh, 9 a.m. East Coast.